You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. Last weekend at the Gospel Coalition Mid-Atlantic Conference, I had the chance to give a presentation on radical responsibility, fostering a culture of mercy in a representative democracy. I got to spend an hour with a room full of people exploring ways that our churches can be part of healing our political culture. There was a lot of ground to cover and not enough time. Could there ever have been enough time? It's such a big topic, you can spend years swimming through it and never even hit the deep end. But as we talked about ways that we as congregants can make our churches into places that foster better politics, there was one point in particular that came up, but that we weren't able to look at in really any kind of depth. And that point was the fact that the same practices, the same attitudes that turn our churches into engines that drive healing in our community's politics also turn our churches into places that are welcoming to the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor, the voiceless, the people who fill the same roles in our society as the widow, the poor, the orphan, and the foreigner did in ancient Israel, the people that a lot of Bible scholars call the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament. Since we didn't have enough time to pause and think about that fact during the presentation, let's take a few minutes to do that now. This was an important and relevant idea to explore because the overall theme of the conference was understanding and practicing biblical mercy, what a lot of churches call mercy ministry or diaconal ministry. Ministry that focuses on meeting the needs of our poor, vulnerable, or marginalized neighbors. When we talk about making a priority of accommodating the poor or attempting to alleviate the symptoms of poverty in people's lives, and especially when we talk about being motivated to do that because of our Christian faith, one question that I've been asked a few times is, didn't Jesus say that the poor would always be with us? The first and most obvious response to that question is that the whole sentence is, the poor will always be with you and you can give to them whenever you want, but I'm only here for a short time. The conversation started because a woman had poured out expensive perfume to anoint Jesus, and the disciples chastised her for wasting it. She could have sold it and given the money to the poor. This was obviously an act of extravagance. The kind of perfume she poured out was expensive and relatively rare. Some scholars speculate that, to put things delicately, the perfume might have been part of the woman's professional equipment, and that pouring it out may have even been sort of a renunciation of her line of work. Whether that's the case or not, it's important to remember that Jesus wasn't rebuking the disciples for their impulse to think about the poor. We know that because his response indicated that they would continue wanting to give to the poor in the future, and that they were morally and practically allowed to do that. 
if he was rebuking them for anything, it was for trying to tamp down on this woman's zeal, for not stopping to take stock of just how wonderful his presence is and how rare an experience it was to have the Lord of all creation physically in your presence. Regardless of whether the perfume was a professional aid or not, it was an expensive luxury. It was an item of great value and maybe an indicator of or a vessel for social capital, for glory. This woman was laying her glory down at Jesus' feet in the same way that the kings of the world will eventually lay their crowns down at his feet. Now that's the low-hanging fruit, and I'm not saying that I'm equipped or qualified to claim that I'm giving any kind of comprehensive, definitive read on this passage, but it's probably not wise to move on until we've at least looked at one other fact. When Jesus told the disciples that they'd always have the poor with them, he didn't make that phrase up. He was quoting scripture. Deuteronomy 15 is addressed to the Israelites. And more specifically, it's addressed to Israelites who might find themselves tempted to be less generous to the poor among them when they know that a year of debt forgiveness is coming up. Let's take a look at that passage real quick. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. At the start of the presentation last weekend, we talked about mercy existing at three scales. The personal scale, the corporate scale, and the political scale. The personal scale is the scale that happens with direct interaction. It's interpersonal. It's close relationships. Relationships that exist because of frequent and ongoing interaction between specific people. It's either familial or voluntary, or in some cases, both. The corporate scale is the relationships between people who might not be very close, but are associated with one another in some significant way. A club, a team, even a church. One of our executive board members, Dustin Messer, wrote a great blog article for us recently about middle rings of American society. You should all visit our website and read it. But the corporate scale is basically the scale of middle rings. This one is also basically voluntary. The political scale is the systems that hold together the relationships between people 
who might never actually meet, never actually share a specific experience. It doesn't tend to be strictly voluntary. You're kind of part of a broader society, whether you meant to be or not, in a lot of cases. The poor were always going to be in Israel because Israel existed at a political scale. Go into most broader societies that have existed at the political scale through most of human history, and you're going to end up finding some people who have significantly more resources than others. Some people start out with more, some people start out with less. Some people accumulate more over the years, and some people lose a lot or have a lot taken from them, and some people end up going through all of those things over the course of their lives. But the apostles weren't a nation. Their relationship to one another existed at the personal scale, at the voluntary scale, and they were about to be commissioned to become the founders of the church, which exists at the corporate scale. If we wanted to, we could probably all structure our lives so that, at the personal scale, we don't have to interact very much or very deeply with people who are much richer or much poorer than us. And honestly, the same thing is true about our lives at the corporate scale. And that's maybe not all that surprising. It's easier to do that. The apostles' relationships to one another were all at voluntary scales. But Jesus said that they would be as certain to have the poor among them as Israel was certain to have poor within its nation at an involuntary scale. Why did Jesus expect them to always have the poor with them? It's easier to not interact with people who are in very different situations from you. How could he expect them to always have the poor with them and still also expect them to have something to give the poor? How could he expect that? God's laws and commandments, his instructions to the people who believe in him for how we should best order our personal and corporate lives so that those lives reflect his intentions for our flourishing. Those laws and commandments have always resulted in God's people forming communities that are attractive to the poor. In Egypt, that worked out at the political level when Joseph put together a proactive program to ensure what we today call food security during difficult times, during a time of famine. In ancient Israel, it also happened at the political level. It was laws concerning gleaning of the fields or proper treatment of laborers or even commands to have regular periods of economic reset. But the church isn't a nation. The church is smaller communities scattered within and throughout all of the nations at the corporate level and testifying to his glory at the personal level through Christians living in line with his character amongst people who don't know him yet. When we're doing that well, our churches will have no choice but to become attractive places to the poor. The Roman Emperor Julian attempted to revive a form of Roman paganism as a civil religion, as a point of national pride, a sort of rallying point for Roman cultural identity. This wasn't the first time in history that a monarch wanted to see God's community wither and die. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to assimilate God's people out of existence. When the Babylonian king wanted to digest the people of Israel into the body of his country, 
God's people were preserved and kept distinct by God's miraculous intervention on behalf of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. But when Emperor Julian wanted to basically accomplish the same thing, God preserved his people through the persuasive beauty of his character being made visible in the lives of the people who had been grafted into his body. Julian couldn't get his new paganism to take hold because of the way Christians were behaving in Roman cities. They don't just take care of their own poor, he complained, but ours as well. Their behavior was making them attractive, making them dear and even precious to the poor. The poor flocked to them and resisted attempts to persuade them away from Christian identity. Last weekend's presentation mostly focused on practical ways to foster Christian community across party lines within a church, and how we as Christians can demonstrate the gospel more clearly when we engage with the public square. The thing we hit on was that the same practices that make us better at dealing with one another and with politics more Christianly are also the things that make our communities more attractive and welcoming places to the poor. And that just shouldn't be a surprise. One day, our Lord's very presence will provoke political healing. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. All the kings of the earth will march into his throne room and kneel down and lay their crowns at the great king's feet. But our Lord is also, in his very nature, relief to the anxious, food for the hungry, hope for the destitute, comfort for the afflicted. And the church is not just a club of people who are big fans of his. The church is commissioned and empowered to actually be his body in this world, his very hands and feet until he returns. He lives in this world. He makes himself visible in it and interacts with it within and through local gatherings of members of his body. Being a healing influence on our political culture and being the kinds of people or communities that make the poor feel welcomed, the desperate feel like they've found refuge, those aren't two different things. They're both evidence that we are walking in line with Jesus's character. I think we mentioned this in our Bible study guide, Light to the World, but scripture calls love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. That's not a typo or an accident. God's Spirit doesn't only show evidence of its presence in one aspect of our lives. Yes, we all have particular gifts and skills, but none of us are one-dimensional, and none of us are broken in only one small corner of our hearts, which means none of us are ever going to actually experience healing in only one small corner of our beings. We're not meant to be healed less, or restored less, or made less glorious than one another. If we're only demonstrating Christian character in our conversations about politics, then we're not actually demonstrating Christian character. We're just impersonating it. As we grow in our understanding of what it means to be the breath of life to the public square, to our neighbors and communities at the political scale, we will 
also find ourselves serving as the breath of life to people at the more personal scales, too. Those of us who are not already poor will find that the poor are going to go from being people who are in our lives once in a while, maybe like at our monthly service project or when our church hosts the occasional mercy meal, to becoming people who are with us always, people who are regular presences in our lives, in our homes, in our hearts, in our minds. And those of us who are poor, as we grow in grace and as the people around us grow in grace, we will find ourselves less afraid, less alone. Poverty can be stressful, especially in an individualistic culture in which, for a lot of us, wealth or work or productivity are really tied pretty closely to some of our ideas about a person's worth or value or our ideas about dignity. And even if that weren't true, just the practical realities of poverty make it hard to share time with other people regularly. And the emotional and psychological and physiological effects of poverty make it hard for the time we do spend with people to be comforting or restful or restorative. Christian character growing not just in the lives of individual Christians, but within a specific community of believers who are serving as Jesus' hands and feet together, as his presence, as his body in this world, it yields spiritual fruit by giving people the opportunity to experience a lighter yoke, a more merciful master. As one of my favorite Christmas carols puts it, and don't worry, I know it's just early October, I'm not trying to like push us into getting ready for Christmas early, but as one of my favorite Christmas carols might phrase it, Christian character growing within a local gathering of believers offers people a thrill of hope. The weary hearts rejoice when they see that new and glorious morning. In just a minute, we're going to close by praying together about this. But first, I want to give a quick update on a special event we're hosting in D.C. on October 25th. The event's called The Power of We, Radical Hospitality in a Hostile Age. And it's going to bring together thoughtful Christians from all around the District of Columbia and the surrounding area. If you're listening to this and you're near D.C., I hope you'll be one of them. We're partnering for this event with Q Ideas, an international organization that's dedicated to helping Christians work through hard questions. And this is part of their annual Q Commons event, which happens in about 140 cities all at the same time. So we'll get to hear some globally syndicated talks from nationally respected speakers. We're going to hear from the author Bob Goff, from Joe Saxton, and from Scott Harrison, who's the founder of Charity Water. And if you join us in D.C., we'll also be hosting exclusive local presentations on site from three tremendously exciting speakers. Um, it's going to include the vice chair of the Capitol Hill Jazz Foundation, who's going to be helping us better understand the relationship between the arts, hospitality, and community identity. We'll also get to hear from Reverend Thomas Bowen, who's the director of the D.C. Mayor's Office of Religious Affairs, and he's going to talk with us about specific ways that he's seen churches throughout our city help their neighbors experience Jesus's healing and flourishing. Stories that don't usually make the news or the local blogs. There aren't a lot of opportunities to meet so many other like-minded disciples in our city, 
And this is one that I hope you won't miss. So please commit to join us for this exciting evening. Uh, We're going to get to learn together, grow together, and we'll all be able to leave with at least one specific next step we can take to be agents of God's healing and flourishing in our city. There's more information on our website, but you can also go to qcommons.com to register right now. If you're not in the D.C. area, but this still sounds exciting to you, head to that website anyway. There might be a similar event taking place near you. Now, please join me in prayer. Rich and glorious King, for our sakes you became poor, that by your poverty we might become rich. You poured out your glory for us, but we're honestly usually afraid to make ourselves vulnerable to people who lack the things that we have, the things that we take comfort in. We're afraid that our glory will be tarnished, or our resources depleted, or our comfort disrupted. You've promised us that that's not the case. You've promised us that your glory is more powerful than our degradation. Your healing is more durable than our brokenness. The flood of your love is more overwhelming than the desert of our hearts and minds. Your resources are vaster than our need. And our need is great. We are deep into a season of open enmity in our public life. We know that this didn't happen suddenly, that this is only the latest evidence of a deep dysfunction that's been working its way up to the surface of our public life for years. We can't heal ourselves of this sickness, and we confess that we've left it untreated for too long. We come before you humbly, expectantly, and confidently, asking for you to extend your hand and touch us so that your contagious health can take root in us in this way. You've trusted us to be Christians in this time and place. You've put your name on us, your banner in our hands, and our names on your hands. Help us live out your grace in our lives and in our life together, being the influence on our communities now that functions as a foretaste of the influence you will be on the world when you return. We ask these things so that your name will be made beautiful and glorious and humbling before the peoples and the nations. And it is in that worthy name that we pray. Amen. If you visit our website, you'll be able to find links to the article I mentioned by Dustin Messer, as well as the Bible study guide I mentioned a little later in the episode. I'll also include a video and more information on Q Commons, The Power of We and a link to our friends at Liberatus, who are helping us pull that event together. We're going to start varying up the format of the podcast a little bit. We'll be trying out some shorter episodes like this one once in a while, along with the longer interview-driven ones. Drop us a comment on Facebook or Twitter to let me know what you think of it. One more note before we leave. A few weeks ago, I was working on our budget for next year, and I realize that it takes... Well, I won't get into exact numbers. I won't bore you all with that. Hearing a spreadsheet read to you is probably not the best radio. But every episode of this podcast costs at least a few hundred dollars to make. 
so that this podcast, this ministry is only possible because of the support of our partners and donors. If you're listening to this and you're one of our regular supporters, I know you already get bonus episodes and all of that, but I want to take a quick moment now to just say thank you again. Even if you're only giving it like if you wish you could be doing a lot more than you actually are able to right now, I want you to know that I see you and I'm grateful for you. You're a big part of making this ministry possible. I'm really grateful for the way that you make this work happen. And the board, the advisory council, and the rest of the Christian Civics team are really grateful for you too. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being a part of this. We'll be back in probably about two weeks. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website. We have some good stuff going up pretty soon. And visit us at christiancivics.org anytime to learn more about our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum.